This morning we talked about the church as the body of Christ, right? And as the body of Christ, He calls us to love one another as He has loved us. We're going to this this afternoon be looking at another aspect of His counsel or His will for the church, and that is for it to be organized, for it to have a a particular way and objective to to operate. We're going to look at the New Testament church. We're going to have a brief overview of history. Um, for those of you who like history, um, we'll take about a 2,000-year journey in about a minute and a half, and we'll come down to the present day and examine the message, work, and organization for God's people today. So that's the plan. Thank you for joining us, and let's just bow our heads for a word of prayer. Father in heaven, thank you for giving us your word. Thank you for giving us the opportunity now, living in 2013, to reflect back upon um, the history recorded in the Bible and the ways in which you have guided and led your people. We want to pray that you'd bless us now, and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. So, um, we begin with the New Testament church, and so I'll, I'll, I'm going to share with you some passages here. I've got them on the screen. If you have your Bibles, we can look them up together. But we're just going to recall here, first of all, the commission that God, Jesus, gave His disciples as He was ascending, as He left. In Matthew chapter 28 and verse 18, He gave this small group of people. It wasn't very many. There were just 12 disciples, and... 70, maybe 120 that were gathered in the upper room later, but there weren't a lot of people there as he was uh, leaving, just with, with family, perhaps a few hundred, but compared to the size of the task that he gave them, it wasn't a very large group. He says in Matthew 28 and verse 18, Jesus came and spake unto them, saying, All power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. Go ye therefore and teach all nations baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. Lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. Now, if you were a disciple, if I were a disciple living in, in, in that day, in, um, in 31 AD, I think that we would have probably looked at Jesus and said, the whole world. I mean, you, you recognize the disciples at that time didn't have any church buildings. They were... Um, well, they were still seeking to bring the Jewish nation along with, the, uh, with them in the proclamation of the gospel. Um, once the Jews rejected Christ and began killing his followers, Stephen, a few years later, uh, they had even less to, to count on. They weren't often allowed to preach in the synagogues. They didn't have churches of worship. They didn't have any type of communication networks besides sending a message, writing a letter, and having somebody take it, um, they didn't even have, not only did they not have satellite TV, they didn't even have the USPS, you know, the postal service. Um, so if you wanted to send a letter, you had to send it by um, not snail mail, just snail, right? You just had to have someone take it there. Pictures? Pigeons. Pigeons, okay. Uh, maybe they used some of those too, I don't know. But... Um, the reality is this was, a, this was a ginormous task, if that's a word, right? This was a huge undertaking to take the whole gospel to the world, teaching all nations um, and telling them about the uh, things that Jesus had taught. 
Now, if we go on and we start looking at how the early church did this, what we're looking for this afternoon is clues as to how they were organized, right? Because it would have been easy for some people to say, well, I know Jesus. I knew Jesus. I mean, Peter could have said, I know Jesus. He, he, I think he taught me to do this and to work this way. And uh, John could have said, well, I knew Jesus too, and I think Jesus would do this. And, uh, you know, Mattathias, the one who uh, replaced Judas, could have said, well, I was there. You know, I, 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 was, I wasn't one of the twelve, but I was a part of, I saw the ascension and so forth, and, and I think we should do this. It would have been very easy, don't you think, knowing the human nature of these twelve individuals we call the twelve disciples or apostles, it would have been very easy, don't you imagine, for the church to have just fragmented in at least twelve different directions? But instead, they were united. In fact, that's why the church was blessed on Pentecost, was because they were all in one accord, Right? They were all praying together in the upper room. They were all in one accord. They were, they were working together. It wasn't as though Thomas, who would go as the missionary to the Far East. In fact, Thomas made it all the way, landed on Goa and the western shores of India. He would make it all the way across to, to Madras, the uh, Chennai, what we call it today, Chennai, the, um, on the eastern coast of India, um, where he would be martyred as a missionary for Jesus. He could have said, well, you know, I'm going, I'm going all the way to the other side of the world. I can do what I want, right? Um, we'll just, I mean, we're all just individuals saved by Jesus. And, oh, maybe we can have local churches. But what we see happening in the New Testament church is we see a network developing that amounts to a, 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 a link between not only individual members in a church, but churches in the world mission field. And this is an exciting thing to discover in the book of, book of Acts. Let's look, look in the first chapter of Acts, verses 23 to 26. Acts chapter 1, 23 to 26. And we see here the uh, organization as they began to replace um, <clears throat> Judas. It says, they, anoint, they appointed two, Joseph called Barsabas, who was surnamed Justice, and Math, Matthias. And they prayed and said, Thou, Lord, which knows the hearts of all men, show whether of these two you have chosen, that he may take part of this ministry and apostleship, from which Judas by transgression fell, that he might go to his own place. And they gave forth his lot, their lots, and the lot fell upon Matthias, and he was numbered with the eleven apostles. Now you see what is happening here? Why would this be important? Why would it be important to replace Judas? Okay, to attain to the number 12 that Jesus appointed. But, I mean, they were going to baptize two, two three thousand in a day pretty soon. Okay, these men were going to be the leadership in the church. So they needed to replace Judas, who had been called by Christ and, and mentored by Christ and given a particular... Um, you might say, influence by that time that he spent with Christ. And they were going to be um, replacing Judas with Matthias. Ben? Because of the what? Oh, because of the Matthew 28 commission. In other words, you're saying the mission of the church drove them to want to make sure they had an, an organization that would be capable, full 
all the blessings to be able to reach the world. And I think you're right. I think all these answers are right. The, the, the fact is, it's not just about people hearing about Jesus and having a personal relationship with Him. We discovered already this early in the book of Acts, it's also about having a, an, if you want to call it an organization, they at least apparently had some semblance of an understanding that an, these offices mattered, right? These offices of the apostles, even though Jesus hadn't called Matthias, uh, Matthias hadn't been one of the disciples, he was to be chosen now by Christ to take the place of, of Judas. Very interesting. Acts chapter 6, verses 1 through 7. There's many things we could look at at Acts. We just have a few minutes here this afternoon, so we're going to move quickly through the book of Acts. Acts chapter 6, verses 1 through 7. And this is a story about when the, the number of the disciples were multiplying. Don't you like that word? Don't you wish churches would multiply today? Yeah. I mean, adding members is not good enough, not according to the book of Acts. These members were multiplying, and that happens when everyone is sharing Jesus, and uh, each one wins one. So in those days, when the number of disciples were multiplied, there arose a murmuring among the Grecians against the Hebrews because their widows were neglected in the daily administration. Then the twelve, who are the twelve? It's the 11 disciples plus Matthias, right? That was at, so obviously these 12 have a function that is different from the rest of the church members. Is this clear? Is this, is this pretty plain in, in the book of Acts so far? Yes. The 12 hear what's going on, and they have the responsibility. They take the initiative to do something about it. They are the leadership. And uh, God has, has ordained them to be the leadership of the New Testament church. And it says, The twelve called the multitude of the, apostles, of the disciples unto them and said, It's not reasonable that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. So already, they not only have different offices, they recognize there are different roles. See that? Different people in the body have different roles. Now this isn't... Paul, Paul would be the apostle who would speak widely on the gift of spiritual gifts, on the subject of spiritual gifts, Right? And uh, we read a lot of his, his message today, um, the church being the body. That's, that, that, that was Paul. But Paul hadn't even become a Christian yet, much less written his epistles. And yet the disciples knew, the apostles knew, that the church functioned together. And there were different people that would have different roles. And we see the role that they are playing now, don't we? as leaders in the church. We see that they are, they are calling the people together. They are looking for a decision. It says, we will give... It says, oh, look out among yourselves seven men of honest report, full of the Holy Ghost and wisdom, whom we may appoint over this business, but we will give ourselves continually to prayer, to the ministry of the Word. And so they chose seven who were ordained as deacons. And it says in verse 7, the Word of God increased, and the number of disciples... And there's that word again. That word multiplied. The number of the disciples multiplied in uh, Jerusalem greatly, and a great company of the priests were obedient to the faith. And so we see what we're seeing here is that there's a structure and organization that is emerging in the early Christian church. Now, um, we continue on in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 9, and we're going to see verses 10 through 18. Acts chapter 9, verses 10 through 18. And this is one of my favorite passages because it really underscores the importance of the body of the church. And it, it does away with this notion that we can just worship God as individuals and not be a part of the body. 
Acts chapter 9 is the story of the conversion of Saul of Tarsus. He would become Paul, the great evangelist. He would not only begin the Christian work in the, in the Greek-speaking world, in the, in the Roman world, and in the Celtic-speaking world, he would also write the majority of the New Testament. No doubt, besides Christ, the most influential, um, influential thought leader of the early Christian church. I mean, very, very significant conversion that takes place on the road to Damascus. And you know the story, how um, there was, well, he got led by the hand, he was blinded by his, his encounter with Christ on the Damascus road, and he was led into Damascus and put into a home, and he, he couldn't see, and he didn't eat or drink for several days, three days. Verse 10 says, there was a certain disciple at Damascus named Ananias. And to him said the Lord in a vision, Ananias, and he said, behold, I am here. And the Lord said unto him, Arise, and go into the street which is called Straight, and inquire in the house of Judas for one called Saul of Tarsus, for behold, he prays. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias coming in and putting his hand on him, that he might receive his sight. Now this is what's going on. Saul is heading towards Damascus to kill Christians. That's basically the, the bottom line, right? He's breathing out threatenings and slaughters, and he has a reputation that precedes him, and he's, he's on his way to Damascus. He's going there to catch Christians and prosecute them um, for their, their, um, their, their uh, you know, leaving the Jewish faith, or at least, you know, not being in harmony with what the elders and rabbis of the Jewish nation were teaching. And so... As he goes to Damascus, he meets Christ on the road, he's blinded, and in the process of these three days where he's not eating or drinking, God shows him a vision, and a person named who is going to come and, and heal him? Ananias. And then God goes to Ananias and says, look, there's a man named Saul. Well, Saul, I know who Saul is, right? I'm sure all the believers already knew Saul and probably heard he was coming, right? And they were quaking in their, in their boots. They were afraid of what Saul might do, and they were probably trying to figure out ways they could keep from meeting Saul, you know? They didn't want him to know where they lived. They didn't want him to know who they were. Um, they were scared for their lives. And so as, 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 as Ananias is getting this message from God, this is his response. He says, I've heard by many of this man how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem and how he has authority from the chief priest to bind all that call on thy name. Notice what God says to Ananias. Go thy way, for he is a chosen vessel unto me to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how great things he must suffer for my name's sake. And so Ananias went into the house right on Straight Street where God told him it would be. And by the way, Straight Street is one of the few streets in Old Town Damascus that's still there, pretty much like it was in Paul's day. I mean, I'm sure the homes, the, I know the homes are not the identical homes, but the street is still the same street. And um, some, of the, some of the terrain and some of the architecture is still there. And I've been on Straight Street and seen where the house of, um, what was his name? Where he was staying, the house of Judas. Um, yeah, on Straight Street. I don't know if it's actually the place, but it's at least the same street. I mean, it's pretty clear. That's, that's been the name for, since antiquity. And um, also the place in the wall where he was let down from a basket. 
I don't know if it's the exact same place, but um, the wall's still there at least, some of the wall that was there in Saul's day. And so here they are, they're on their way, I mean, Ananias goes to Straight Street, he finds the house of Judas, he finds Saul of Tarsus, who's, who's infamous, and he says, you know, I've come here, I've been sent here, and you need to receive your, your sight. Now what we see happening here, what I want you to understand, this is a powerful, powerful lesson that God is teaching the early church. Jesus did not need to send Ananias to Saul. He could, have, he could have healed Saul any way he wanted to. Are you with me in that? He did not need to send Ananias. Um, we might argue that it was for Ananias' benefit. He needed his faith strengthened. That's usually the way it is with us in witnessing, isn't it? But the fact of the matter is, and I want to underscore this, and if you read the book Acts of the Apostles, you'll see this emphasized as well. God was connecting Saul with his organized church. Are you with me? You see, the church is not just all about individuals with a relationship with God. It's about us uniting with the people of God. And Saul needed not only to know that Jesus was in fact the Messiah, the Redeemer, that he was persecuting and that his followers were true, he needed to also be connected with the people of God, with the church of God. And that is what God was doing when he sent Ananias to heal Saul and um, to connect him with the church. Acts chapter 13. Let's skip on down here a few more verses. Acts chapter 13, verse 1. It says, Now there were in the church which was at Antioch certain prophets and teachers, as Barnabas and Simeon that was called Niger, and Lucius of Cyrene, and Manian, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. And they ministered to the Lord and fasted. And the Holy Ghost said unto me, Separate me, Barnabas and Saul, for the work whereunto I have called them. And when they had fasted and prayed, they laid their hands on them and sent them on their way. So this is some three years, a little over, after Saul's conversion. And Saul now, who would become Paul, is set aside by the church in, in Antioch with a special mission. He would become a missionary. He would go out as an evangelist to try to win others with the gospel of Jesus, right? But what we see happening, once again here, is there's order and organization. It wasn't as though Saul and Barnabas just said, hey, we like to preach, you know? We should be preaching. Give us a corner we can preach on, or give us the church we can preach in. No, the brethren came together. Now, we, we, we might read these words glibly, but the reality is what we see is a group of people working unitedly together. And we see some sort of structure, protocol, and organization taking place to send missionaries, right? How big is their work? The whole world. But yet, you have local churches, local churches who only have, you know, influence in a small town. Here we see them now ordaining, commissioning, sending people out, not just to work in their community, but to work out into the larger community. They're now reaching out into the whole world. And isn't that what God had said would happen? You'll be witnesses for me in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and eventually to the uttermost parts of the earth. It wasn't just, get this very clearly, it wasn't just that there were people who had a burden laid upon their hearts to go as a missionary to India, but it was a church that sent them. 
Does that make sense? It, were people, it was people that sent them and helped them and, and affirmed what God was calling them to do. I'm sure Barnabas and Paul were also convicted that they were to go out and be missionaries, right? But the church, the Bible even records not their convictions. The Bible records how the Holy Spirit moved the church to send them. And so what we see here is order and organization taking place in a very specific way, in a very um, remarkable way. Now, there are two instances of organization also in the book of Acts that lead us to conclude that the church was organized with some sense of order and organization, not just in the local churches. And these are the two Jerusalem councils. We read one of them in Acts chapter 15. And um, we read about the other one back in Acts uh, chapter, let's see, when is that? Acts chapter 20, 21. And so there's, um, there's a, there's a uh, yeah. And so what we see is that when in Acts chapter 15, there's, there's, a dis, there's a disagreement that takes place in the church. This shouldn't be too surprising. They were humans, weren't they? And they weren't perfect. And it says in verse 1, that certain men which came down from Judea taught the brethren and said, except you are circumcised after the manner of Moses, you cannot be saved. And uh, it says, when therefore Paul and Barnabas, verse 2, had no small disputation, dissension and disputation with them, they determined that Paul and Barnabas and certain other of them should go up to where? To Jerusalem under the apostles and elders about this question. Now, what does this tell us? What this tells us is even though Barnabas and Saul had gone off into the far-flung reaches of the world, there was still an, an understood accountability to the larger church. Does this make sense? So when this disagreement came up in the territory that Paul and Barnabas were pioneering, I mean, these people were coming to from Jerusalem and causing these troubles. They could have said, look, God sent us here. We were commissioned. The church at Antioch ordained us. They sent us out. Why are you interfering with us? Let us do our own thing. Is that what they said? No, what they said was, this is very strong. We believe this is the way it should be. We don't believe you have to, be Mos- uh, you have to follow the whole law of Moses in order to be saved. We believe that there's been, as Paul would say later, those ordinances have been nailed to the cross, right? There's no longer a difference between Jew and Gentile. Uh, between uh, male and female, slave or free. And so there's, there's this very strong sense of their convictions on this matter. And they, they are there doing God's work at His bidding, being sent by the church of Antioch. And, by the way, they were right. I mean, history bears it out, doesn't it? Paul and Barnabas were doing the right thing. They were teaching the, the way they should be. Uh, and, and if there's any question about it, Paul's the one who wrote the rest of the New Testament that helps us understand the way it should be, right? I mean, he, he's, he was inspired by God to do that, to help us understand that. And so there's no question they were right, but they weren't so right that they couldn't be in submission, in subjection to the larger church. What larger church? They are the church, right? No, but there is a worldwide family at this point, Right? It's not just the church of Antioch that sent them. It's not just the church there in, in Asia Minor that they are establishing and that they have, they have founded. But even that connection goes back to the brethren in Jerusalem who had very little to do with Paul's conversion and nothing to do with his being ordained and sent out specifically. 
but all of them recognized we we're part of one family. There was, there was a sense of organization even in the early Christian church. Are you with me on this? Does this make sense? And so there's this disputation. They said, let's, let's go to the brethren in Jerusalem. In Acts 15, we see the Jerusalem council. Later, Paul would be called again to the Jerusalem council. Both instances are examples of organization in the early church. Now, when we say organization, there are some people who say, yeah, but you know, they weren't recognized by the government. They didn't have a 501c3 or tax nonprofit and all that stuff. That's true. That's not what I'm talking about here. What I'm talking about is the fact that there was order and organization, and it was done in a way that would facilitate a global work. Is this making sense? Why? Because the church was given a global job to do. Now, let's, let's take a little bit of a, um, a, a picture of the Christian church and what it was meant to be. 1 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 15. Let's define what the church is here very briefly. 1 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 15. I like this, pa- this passage because it helps me understand what God expects of the church and what, how he defines the church. It says, this is Paul writing to Timothy. He says in 1 Timothy 3 and verse 15, But if I tarry long, that thou mayest know how you ought to behave yourself in the house of God, which is the what? Church of the living God, the pillar and what? And ground of the truth. And um, in my... In my uh, Margin, it's like it says the ground is sort of like the foundation, the stay of the truth. And so the church is defined here by Paul as the pillar and ground of the truth. Now, does this mean that everybody in the church understands all truth equally and fully? No. But what it does mean is this, is, this is how I understand it. I believe the church, as defined by Paul here, the church is the entity or the, the, um, the, the group of people to whom God, through whom God reveals truth to the world. Are you with me on that? The church is the entity through whom God reveals truth to the world. Now, I'm not here to say that there's not different ways of understanding the word church. We can talk about a local church, a church building. We can talk about the, what some people call the invisible church, meaning anyone who is born again, no matter what denomination, even if, they're, even if they don't even really belong to any Christian group. I mean, we could consider them part of the body of Christ, the spiritual body of Christ, and there is invisible church, we might call that. But when it comes to church organization, God has to have a visible group of people through whom he chooses to send the light of the truth to the world. And uh, that's what I see here happening, see being defined in 1 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 15. Now, if we, uh, if we look back in history to try to understand how that happened, we see that God has done a number of things, and we're going to look at that history in just a brief second. God has done a number of things to try to reveal the truth to the world. Originally, um, after the fall of man, the antediluvians forgot about God, didn't they? And eventually, even though Adam was still alive for half of that, that pre-flood history, even though Methuselah, who overlapped with Adam for many years, was still alive, um, they still forgot about God. They, they went their own way. And I'm not sure that they all weren't. I mean, I think many of them were probably God-believers, quote-unquote. You know, I mean, I think many of them were considering themselves to be God's followers, but they weren't. 
And um, obviously, when Noah sent his message, they rejected it, right? So God started all over, and you remember what happened? How long did it take for the world to forget about God again? Not very long. In fact, it had become pretty bad again. By the time God looked down and saw in Ur of the Chaldees one young man named Abram. And um, Abraham had, had found favor in the eyes of God, much like Noah found favor in the eyes of God. But you have, you have to understand, Abraham lived for at least 75 years. Let me put it, put it this way differently. Abraham, Noah was alive for at least 75 years of Abraham's life. Noah's sons may have nearly almost outlived Abraham. Yeah, Shem, I think, did, from what we know. So, you're talking about very closely removed of the flood. How can they forget so quickly, right? How can they forget? And so God looks down and he says, I need to find some way to preserve my truth and to take it to the world. And so he chose to use the, a, a method we call patriarchs, right? And this method of patriarchs would choose a family line wherein the firstborn son would inherit the birthright, which included the spiritual leadership of the family, the ancestry of the Messiah, as well as um, two-thirds of the physical possessions of the father. And Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and finally, the children of Jacob, right? The children of Israel. What were their purpose? What was the purpose of God in choosing the patriarchs and later the children of Israel? God's purpose was to use them to reveal the truth of His character to the world. Is that clear? Do we all agree on that? God's purpose was to use the patriarchs and later the children of Israel to reveal the character of God to the world. Now, did that mean that all of them were perfectly converted and had all the right views of the truth? Look at, the, look at these patriarchs. They had some problems, right? We see them. Look at the twelve sons of Judah, uh, of Jacob. Look at, the, look at the children of Israel, right? The children of Israel called out of Egypt were entrusted with the truth. Were they all converted? No. Did the ones in the children of Israel who were converted leave the rest of them and say, you guys? No, they were all together. They, they, those who weren't converted, I believe, are going to be on... They're not only just going to be lost in the end like, a, like, the, like the heathen nations around will be lost. They will be lost with the extra burden of having been entrusted and knowing the truth and not doing anything about it. Does that make sense? The church is given an awesome privilege. It's also a heavy responsibility. And what Paul talks, well, it's not Paul, it's Stephen, in his sermon in Acts chapter 7, verse 38. Notice with me how he describes the children of Israel in the wilderness. Now, the word church is not a word you find in the Old Testament. It's not a Hebrew word. And so you have congregation is the word that's used usually in the Old Testament. But notice how he says in Acts chapter 7 and verse 38. He says, this is he that was with, that was in the what? The church in the wilderness, with the angel that spoke to him in the Mount Sinai, and with our fathers, who received the lively oracles to give unto us. What does Stephen call the children of Israel back there at Mount Sinai? It's the church. Now, it doesn't mean they're all converted. It doesn't mean they're all perfect. There were some apostates, and there ended up being some shakings, and some purifications, and all the rest, right? But they were the church because they had been given the responsibility to be stewards of the truth, stewards of the law, and to share that blessing 
and the news of the Messiah with the nations around them. And so let's just take a real quick overview of church history. We see the, the, um, the Jewish nation rejected Jesus and his message, right? And so what I understand is that after that time, after 34 AD, the end of the 70 weeks of Daniel chapter 9, the end of the time in which they were um, given opportunity to accept the Messiah, at the end of that time, the gospel went to the Gentiles. And uh, Acts chapter 8 and verse 4 records that those who were persecuted went everywhere scattering, uh, preaching the word of God. They were scattered everywhere. And um, as they began sharing and preaching, the gospel was taken not, not only to the Jews, but also to the Gentiles. And this would lead Paul to understand that the Jewish nation had forfeited their, their birthright, you might say. Just like Esau forfeited his birthright, the Jewish nation had given up theirs too. And they were no longer the channel through which God would reveal His truth to the world. They couldn't be, because they not only killed the Messiah, they refused to own up with it, to it, and they began killing His followers. And now there's a new visible church on earth. Does this make sense? And that's the Christian church. Are they all perfect? No. In fact, you read, you read in 1 Corinthians chapter, uh, well, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, the first verse, talking about the church, Paul says, the church of God at Corinth. We won't turn there to save time. Called to be saints, he says. And yet we know there were some pretty bad things going on in Corinth um, that needed to be addressed and dealt with, and some people needed to be disfellowshipped from the church. But they were the church um, at God, of God at Corinth. Now, as time went on, you know what happened. Um, Paul even predicted before he died that after my departing, ravenous wolves will come in, not sparing the flock. Remember that? And even from among yourselves, teachers will arise, teaching perverse things. So among, even within the Christian church, Paul predicted there would, be an, there would be apostates that would lead off disciples after them, taking them away from the true teachings of Jesus. And so as that happened, the apostolic church, the apostle, the apostolic church went into decline. Um, I referred here to 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 2. And, um, oh man, I forgot to animate those slides. Um, so as, 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 the, uh, as the apostles were, were, had become the, the, the visible church of God, they soon passed to their graves, and the church came to um, a time of apostasy, right? In which, in which there's a falling away, falling away from the truth. The man of sin was revealed, as Paul calls him in, in his letter to the Thessalonians. And so there came a need eventually for a calling out of the visible church, the Christian church. There came a need for a calling out. And God through that time, you can read about it in Revelation chapter 12, God through that time preserved the truth, not so much through the visible church as through, as through a, a rather invisible group of scattered people hiding in the mountains who retained the scriptures and, and, and true beliefs. But you know what? They weren't all in one place. I mean, talking about the truths. There were some people who believed the Sabbath. There were some people who understood about the state of the dead. There were some people that understood about, about salvation. But there were very few who all in one place understood all of the beliefs that the apostles had had. Do you understand? Does that make sense? Um, we talk about the Waldenses. And there were some Waldenses who kept the Sabbath. But most of them, through, um, through at least the history we have, uh, they didn't. They didn't understand those things. There were some, some indifferent parts who had an understanding of the truth. And it wasn't just in, 
It wasn't just in Italy and, and France, it was also in Africa and China and other places. The truth was being preserved in little groups of people. But what was the visible church? If we read Revelation 3, and this is going to be a little startling to some of us, some, uh, um, but my conclusion is, as I read Revelation chapter three, uh, 2 and 3 and the seven churches, the seven churches are the visible churches. Because as, as we read about the seven churches who we believe to represent the people of God in different eras, right? Is that what we believe they represent? As we read the seven churches, we don't see a description in Revelation 2 and 3 of the Walden Seas. We see a description of the papacy. You've suffered that world and Jezebel to, to rule over you. Are you with me on that? That's hard for us to really comprehend because we are so used to thinking about the the Christian church during the Middle Ages as being apostate. But it was, still the, it was still the visible group of people whom God had given the truth to take to the world. And I believe they're going to be judged on that basis. I really do. The first calling out of that group, read, study the seven churches for yourself, that's my conclusion. The first calling out of that in a public way would be at the beginning of the Reformation, where you have you know, Calvin going home to home and teaching in the villages and hamlets and castles about the true way of salvation. You have Martin Luther nailing his 95 theses. You have John Wesley later teaching about righteousness by faith and obedience. You have all of these truths now coming, and to, to, to a degree they hoped at the beginning to reform the church, but they realized the church would not be reformed, and they began calling God's people out of the church, right? There was a coming out of Babylon. Um, and uh, a, a definite fall of Babylon. And so as the church rejected the message of the Reformation, there came a message to come out of the church. And then began the Reformation. Now read, read again. Read in the seven churches. When you read about the church of Philadelphia, um, you see a, you don't, I don't believe that we see any one group of people, but we see the Reformation itself as being God's visible group of people whom are work, he is working to take the, work, the truth of God to the world. Does this make sense? Um, he's working through them. But they too would have a challenge because a man named William Miller would begin preaching about the second coming. And do you know that the churches that had, that had been kicked out of their previous um, denomination, the Roman Catholic Church, the churches that had said, we're going to stand on the Bible and the Bible only is the word of God, because they hadn't this hadn't been a part of their creed and a part of their beliefs. They rejected the message of the second coming. They did. And um, well, I don't want to go into all the details, but the Bible would record an end-time message that Babylon is fallen is fallen. And I believe this is the second fall of Babylon when, when the churches of the Reformation rejected the messages of the Word of God, the further light that God would bring them, and led to a new call to come out into, again, an organized, visible group of people through whom God has given His end-time message. Now, let's, let's look real quickly at, the, um, at, uh, at what the, the message, uh, what, the, what the sequence of things uh, took place was. Um, in 1844 and 18, between 1844 and 1850, those who had been a part of the Millerite movement, they began to understand the sanctuary message. Um, they also began to understand the, the Sabbath. They began to publish what they had understood in 1850. Um, during the 1850s, the membership expanded, if they can call it membership. There was no organization, but the, the group expanded from about 200 in 1850 
to about 3,000 in 1860 or around that time, 1859. Um, there was an average of 30% growth rate in those who were a part of what we call the Advent Movement or the Millerite Movement. And they established a, established a publishing house. Um, they began to expand into Michigan. They started in New York, New York and New England. Um, they expanded into Michigan, Illinois, Wisconsin, Canada, and California. But throughout this process of expansion, there were among the early Adventists, there was an, there was a, an environment of resistance to organization. And um, part of this came because there was a debate over what type of organization was appropriate. Would they go the congregationalism route? Um, some, of the, um, some of the pioneers, James White and others, had come from a congregationalist background. Um, or or um, what about the, the use of sort of like the, more like the Episcopalian church, which had presbyteries and conferences and general assemblies? And so there was this... There was this uh, distinction of what type of organization, if they were to be organized, should they use? Baptists and Congregationalists versus Methodists and Presbyterians. There was also a, um, and they, they had a shared experience in the early 1850s. Most of them had been kicked out of churches for teaching that Jesus was going to come again. And their churches had used creeds to, to, to say they could no longer be tolerated because they didn't believe, this, this belief they were teaching wasn't in the creed, and so you aren't a part of our group anymore. And um, you, can, you can even find some of the records of the different families being voted out of membership of their Methodist or Baptist or whatever churches because they believe Jesus is coming. It's, it's interesting because today most of those denominations also believe Jesus is coming in one form or another, but then this was a very controversial issue. And so people were, were, were persecuted for their beliefs by the organized churches, and they said, we don't want to, to establish that again. We don't want to go back there. And um, George Storrs says, for example, in the midnight cry of uh, February 15, 1844, take care that you do not seek to manufacture another church. No church can be organized by man's invention, but what it becomes Babylon the moment it is organized. And I might agree with him if you're talking about if you're organized by man's invention... <laughs> But um, clearly God led in the organization of the early Christian church, and that wasn't man's invention. Um, so you have an opposition to creeds. I mentioned that. You have even opposition to choosing a name for the group of people that were um, coming together and studying. They've grown from 200 people to 3,000 people now, and we, they didn't want to call themselves anything particular. Now, you understand, if, if you're going to be a visible group of people by whom God is going to take the message to the world, you need to be a distinct people too, right? And, um, of course, we're not going to get into all of the Spirit of Prophecy Council on this topic, but clearly God would have them denominated, set apart from the world with a name, with a unique identity. And um, notice... What Roswell Cottrell said, he read Genesis 11, saw that the builders of the Tower of Babel said, let us make a name, and he then preached sermons and read, wrote articles saying, if we make a name for ourselves, if we call ourselves something that we have, this is the foundation of Babylon. And so there was an opposition even to that. You understand what kind of environment this was in the 1850s? God was moving, God was leading his people, um, but there was an opposition to the, um, there was opposition to the very, basic parts of, or of organization. There were several things that 
unified the believers during this time. The believers saw themselves as members of the true church. In other words, they read Revelation 14 and three angels' messages, and they said, God has called us to give this message. We are fulfilling prophecy. And that's an important understanding they had. They said, we know that the message that we've been given to share is the, time, is the message for this time. Um, they were united in unique doctrinal positions. We talked about some of those uh, briefly. And nearly all of them had passed through the 1844 disappointment, so they had that in common. And they also spent time getting together. They had frequent conferences, sometimes in a member's barn, sometimes in the houses, sometimes in tent meetings, where they would hash out or study together different topics to be able to understand them better. Um, they also had dynamic and energetic young leadership, and they had the visions of Ellen White, which guided them when they met in passes. But there were some things that were, they were doing to try to unify the people as well, and, and one of the major works they were using was the publishing work. At first, they were publishing their material in a Millerite paper. After their disappointment, the Day Star um, was still available to them. And so the Daystar was published by Enoch Jacobs in New England, and this paper was still widely read, and so the, the early Adventists would use this Millerite paper. Then Enoch Jacobs became a shaker and left the, the, uh, you know, the Protestant heritage that he had had. And um, so they used O.R.L. Crozier's Daydon magazine or newspaper, and they would publish in that. But eventually they said, we have to have our own. We have to be able to have our own voice to communicate our own clear message to the people who are studying together. And James White was the one who was leading out in this. And finally, some funds were given and a press was purchased. But who would own the press? Well, James White had to own the press because there was nobody else that would step up. He was the one running it and organizing it and everything else. So it was in his personal name. So you see what's happening now. People are giving money and it's coming to James White. And James White is a young 20-something-year-old fellow who doesn't want that responsibility. He, and by the way, with that responsibility came all kinds of gossip and rumors and accusations, and he's profiting himself, he's getting rich off the work, he's getting, you understand, it was, a, it was not fun for him. And so he began to say, we need some sort of a structure, some sort of organization. We need it for several reasons. One, to hold property. James White was very personally... Um, clear on that. One is to certify ministers. How do you know when someone shows up at your church or your home group or whatever it is on a Sabbath morning, how do you know that they're, they're not wolves in sheep's clothing? Oh, yeah, I'm one of you, you know. Well, the only way to know would be to have some sort of a conference get together and say, these are the people that are certified. But that's organization. You understand? And what are we going to say they're organized or, or certified by, or, you know, what's the, what's the prerequisite? That, that starts to sound like we're defining a creed, you know? And so it became very controversial, and, and yet this was the need we had. We also had the challenge of dealing with apostasy. There were people who had moral lapses, infidelity among ministers, among church members. There were no pastors to deal with it because there were no pastors. There was, no one had any authority because there's no organization. Do you understand that there's a direct relationship between authority and accountability and organization. Does that make sense? You have to have, you have to have organization, mutually agreed upon organization for there to be authority and accountability to that authority. And so these were the three major reasons that 
the early Adventist church began to say, we need organization. And a Washington, New Hampshire church began ordaining deacons in November of 1851. This is what we believe the, the first of the um, officers that were ordained in a biblical manner after the, ch- the Adventist church began. Of course, there was no Adventist church, but this was the first Sabbath-keeping church anyway there. Um, the ordination of Horace Lawrence as a minister-slash-elder in September of 1853, and then there's a, there's a pretty pretty long period of time before any other steps were taken in church organization. They did attempt to establish church discipline and to support a full-time ministry, not as a pastor over a specific church, but as pastors who would help to shepherd the, the larger flock. Um, there, were, there were those who opposed organization on the basis of the church-state relationship. If we organize as a church and have structure and are approved by the state, aren't we making a union between church and state? And you know what Revelation says about that, right? That's spiritual adultery. And so there are those who said we can't be organized on that basis. In 1860, they had a three-day conference in September, and they formed a publishing association, much to the relief of James White, who by now had quite a few assets in his name, and he wanted to divulge them into a shared corporation. They formed a publishing association, the first official organization of the Adventist Church, and they voted that we call ourselves Seventh-day Adventists. Um, It would be another year before the first state conference was organized in Michigan, and uh, the next year and a half or so, other state conferences were organized until in May of 1863. Delegates from the state conferences that had been uh, organized already met in Battle Creek, and the constitution of a general conference was agreed upon. Now, at this time, James White was asked to be the first general conference president. He declined, um, even though he was the obvious choice and the de facto leader of these early Adventists. Um, he declined because he had been the one pushing for organization. He and his wife had been the one among the foremost voices saying, we need organization. We have a worldwide work to do. We need not just local churches organized, we need an organization between our churches to be able to prosecute the worldwide work that we believe Revelation 14, 6 and 7 tells us we are to do. We're the three angels to give that message to every nation, kindred, tongue, and people. And um, very briefly, as a result of this organization, in only about 150 years, the Seventh-day Adventist Church became the largest church geographically on the globe. If you count the work that our disaster and development relief agencies do, we are operating in more countries than any other Christian group, um, period, not just Protestant group. Um, if, you, if you look at our educational system, it's the largest Protestant. Our health system, it's the largest Protestant system. And yet we've been here much, lo- much shorter period of time. Why? Because of organization. Because people don't just give their monies. When we give our monies here at this church, it doesn't come to me. Our tithe, your tithe doesn't come to me. It goes to a world church with structure and with organization meant to implement a worldwide mission. Um, It's because I believe a worldwide mission requires a worldwide organization. Um, And and so God's leading, I believe God has led us in this way. I believe many have heard about Jesus who wouldn't have heard about it otherwise because not, not only of organization, but the type of organization that God led his people to establish. I want to just close with one passage here from Revelation 14. I referred to it a couple times, but um, I want to, I want to, I want us just to close on this um, thought here in Revelation 14, verses 6 and 7. 
says, I saw another angel fly in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach unto them that dwell on the earth, to every nation, kindred, tongue, and people, and saying with a loud voice, Fear God and give glory to Him, for the hour of His judgment has come, and worship Him that made heaven and earth, the sea, and the fountains of waters. I believe in church organization because this is how the New Testament represents the mission of the early church was accomplished. And in one generation, God blessed his, the apostolic church to take the, the gospel, as Paul would say in, in Colossians chapter 1, verse 23, to every creature under heaven. Um, I believe that with the power of the Holy Spirit and us following and working together, not just as a local church, but as a worldwide family accountable to one another, I believe that God can do the same thing and fulfill Revelation 14, 6 as well. A message can go forth to every nation, kindred, tongue, and people. That's the prophecy. I think it's going to happen. And I'm thankful that we can be a part of it. Thank you for joining us this afternoon. Let's just close with a word of prayer. Father in heaven, thank you for giving us the chance to share in your work. As we think about church, we know that you call us to be a part of the body of Christ. And we know that includes a local church, a local church family, wherein we can find fellowship and accountability. We also know that the church is organized for mission. As we look at the New Testament church, we see clearly that there was an interdependency and an interrelationship between not only members, but between congregations and different parts of the world field as well. And I just pray that you would help us not to try to act as independent atoms, not to try to go do our own thing, not to pretend that all that matters is a relationship with you, even if that's where it all starts and, and, and that's the most important thing. But help us to also realize that we're called. We're called into a community of faith. We're called into to be a part of a work that, defective and feeble as it may be, um, as much as it may reflect humanity in our earthly organization, we're called to be organized. And we're called to, we're called to take this message not just to our families, not just our neighbors, but in fact we're tasked with the responsibility of the whole world. Um, help us to be faithful to that. Uh, help us to do the work that lies nearest and be faithful in supporting our brothers and sisters around the world. Thank you and Please bless us in this rest of the Sabbath day and in the coming week. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.